Suppose your boss, your boss is on vacation and the big project isn't due until he gets back next week. Your parents are out running errands and your room is supposed to be clean when they get home. Your professor gave you until the end of the semester to finish all your reading for the class. What do these situations have in common? When we know the deadline, we often wait until the last minute to get serious about our responsibilities. But if you don't know if your boss is coming back today or in three days, whether your parents will be home at the regular time or nine o'clock at night, or whether your professor could move up the deadline on your project, you start working well ahead of time to make sure you're not caught off guard. Mark 13 talks about a lot of ideas that tie into Old Testament prophetic statements and reminds us of things that we might read in 1 John or even in Revelation. However, we should not miss the main point of this chapter, follow Jesus with watchful preparation. Watch out, be ready. Follow Jesus with watchful preparation, first of all, amidst disaster and persecution. We see this in the first 13 verses. The first few verses, I think, show us this idea to start out. Instead of watchful preparation, we tend to trust in our own accomplishments. A disciple pointed out the temple to Jesus in wonder. Jesus says in response to this, there's a day coming when not one stone will be left upon the other. Herod's temple seems to have been an expansion of the temple rebuilt by Zerubbabel. But as we saw last week, it was a temple full of greed and oppression. They didn't have the objects of the first temple, the, the Ark of the Covenant. As far as we know, the Ark of the Covenant was lost around the time that the Babylonians carried the people of Judah into exile. All of the other things that were supposed to be in the temple that God had commanded to be there, they're not there. You have priests, but the priests end up being political figures instead of those who are in holiness and devotion serving after God. You have no king. So there is an attempt to follow the things that the law required when it came to having a temple and worshiping God at the temple. They're still doing sacrifices. They're still doing ceremonial washings. There's all of these things going on, but they're missing key elements. And more importantly, they were doing things with a sinful heart. They're ruled over by materialistic Sadducees and Pharisaic scholars, not devoted followers of God. And they're doing things out of a sense of duty, not out of a sense of love and obedience. We might think, we might rather not think that our church could be political and materialistic like the Sadducees or scholarly and devoted to religious discussions like the Pharisees. But like the people Jesus is talking to, if we ever confuse the worship of God with the place we worship God, we make the same errors that they did. Their system of religious practice kept the form of religion but denied its power by rejecting the Messiah. The, the thing, or rather the person that they were lacking in their worship of God was God. They had the building, but God wasn't there. God comes and walks among them and they see him and they reject him because they would rather keep their system of worship empty of God instead of acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah. We do likewise if we say with them the church is the place where we worship. Unfortunately, many churches in the U.S. think that 
buildings and programs and defined service times and large budgets and any number of other things are the marks of a, of a successful church. Well, why do you want to go to that church? They have a good youth group. Why do you want to go to that church? They have this particular really niche focused thing of a topic of area that I'm interested in. And so we start to evaluate the success or the faithfulness or the churchness of a church based on a lot of things that are extra biblical. But the New Testament makes it clear that the church exists wherever God's people gather to worship him. God didn't need the mountain in Samaria or the temple in Jerusalem, as he reminded the woman in John 4, the Samaritan woman at the, at the well. God doesn't need a temple or a church building. God wants worshipers who come in the spirit and in truth. It doesn't matter where we gather, but whether we gather to worship God instead of, like the Pharisees were doing, uphold traditions and not really be worshiping God. This is clearly seen not over in the New Testament, but also in the experience of the church today in many places around the world, especially places of great persecution. Going back to the people here in this passage, because the religious leaders of his day worshipped their traditions and not God, they rejected the Messiah when he walked among them. As a result, God destroyed the temple so they could no longer be proud of its stones and features, its history, and its memories of former greatness. Eventually, this place where we stand will also come down. Might not be in our lifetime. Could be 100, 150 years from now. I don't know. That's the point. We won't be around to see it, probably, right? But if our church gathers, wherever it gathers, is it still our church, Ambassador Baptist Church? The answer is yes. Should we still gather, even if it is in a different place. Yes, if our commitment is to God and each other, not to a building. A church is not defined by its place, it's defined by a group of people gathered together and committed to worship and serve God together. And that's a hard thing for us to think about because for us in our society, in our background, we all of us grew up in a spot, right? For me, it was the church right across the road from my house. My grandpa's office was there. I'd go spend time walking around the gym when I was two and three years old with my grandma, and we'd play dinosaurs and line tag and house and who knows what all other things. There's a lot of memories in that place. Um, that place doesn't look now the way that it did then, and I haven't been back in a really long time. Um, part of that had to do with the direction that that church went and the direction that they went was, they said, what do people who are unbelievers in the community around us want in order for them to come to the church? So they went away from the focus of the church as being a place for edification and God's people to be instructed and all those sorts of things. And they went to saying, the church is about getting everybody to come in. But... Let's suppose that something different had happened. Let's suppose it had been a little country church and it got hit by a tornado. And that place that I grew up and had all those memories in was gone. As long as the people who are part of that church 
And as long as God was worshipped, that church could be wherever. It wouldn't have to be in that place. It would still be that church. Here's the connection with what's going on in this passage. Jesus' disciples are looking at the temple and they're saying, look at this wonderful building. And Herod did a great construction project. People didn't expect it of him. They thought he was going to do one of these things like working on I-75. It's going to take 10 years and then it's broken again and it's never going to get finished and all that kind of thing, right? But he did it. If the things I was reading were accurate, within like two years, he does this major renovation on the temple and makes it a beautiful building. So here's what Zerubbabel did. And then there's there's ups and downs in the, the condition of the building over the years. And then Herod comes and makes it this beautiful thing. And the people of, of Israel said, yeah, the Romans may be in charge. And yeah, we're missing some really important things. But look at that. That's impressive. And Jesus says, that's a mark of the people who say they follow me with their outward actions and with their hearts they don't love me. Now for the common people, I believe in Jesus' day, they weren't following God the way they were supposed to because the people who were supposed to be teaching them, the, the scribes and the priests and so forth, were not teaching them what God had said the way that they were supposed to. We were just looking at Zephaniah chapter 3, and it talks about the fact that there is coming a day of restoration of God's people in which the lame and the outcast will be gathered. So when Jesus goes and ministers to the lame and the outcast, the people should have been thinking, he's ministering to the lame and the outcast. Is this the day of the gathering of God's people in which he establishes his kingdom? And they were thinking something along those lines. But somewhere along the way, everything got misunderstood. Somehow, they didn't think Isaiah 53 was part of the whole thing, which talks about a servant who suffers. So if Isaiah says servant who suffers in Isaiah 53, and he says a branch who comes to rule and reign in Isaiah 11, Somebody wasn't teaching them both things. And who is it that God condemned even in Zephaniah 3? The prophets who didn't speak God's word, the priests who were unholy, the kings who took advantage of the people, and the judges who were unjust. And so some combination of those four groups of people, humanly speaking, were to blame for the people having a wrong perspective of God and of what God was doing in the world. Jesus' sobering words made the disciples wonder when and how it would all take place. So how does Jesus answer their questions? He starts out not by answering the question of when. Verse 4, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Jesus instead points them to watching out for things that would be deceitful. So verse 3 is fascinating. He's leaving the temple when the disciple says, hey, look at this. He makes his comment. Then he's with the disciples on the Mount of Olives, looking over at the temple again. One of the disciples says, hey, what you said when we were leaving the temple here earlier, what did you mean by that? When is all this going to happen? The disciples wondered when it would happen and how would they recognize it all. 
Jesus says, instead of trusting a man's accomplishments, we must watch out for false teaching during disaster. When is it going to happen? How will we recognize it? Jesus says, see to it that no one misleads you. Many would come who would claim to be from God. Verse 6, I am he. I'll mislead many. There would be many things like wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines, and those would come, but those would not be the moment of his return. <clears throat> like the disciples, we want to know when everything will happen. Jesus focused instead on the dangers to watch out for while we wait. Peter agreed, the end of all things is near, therefore be alert and of sober mind that you may pray. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. Paul agreed, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6. The focus should not be first and foremost when, like the disciples said, but that we are not deceived away from our walk with God while we wait for God to unfold his plan. People have wrongly tried to predict the time of Jesus' return for centuries. Many have claimed to have special knowledge from God, and they were false prophets. Among them were the ones that founded various sects, like the Seventh-day Adventist, or various cults, like the Jehovah's Witnesses. Those, both of those groups grew out of movements that said, Jesus is coming back on this date, and then all the other things they came up with and attached to it. Others have not tried to set a date, but they've mixed biblical prophecies um, with supposed messages from God that were probably actually demonic messages like the Mormons, and they've misunderstood how it all fit together. And the reality is, even well-meaning Christians who genuinely were trying to walk with God have assumed that they were living in the end times and, and rightly or wrongly made a whole series of decisions based on that assumption. People thought that particularly during the Middle Ages. They thought that the Catholic Church was Babylon and that the world would end within a few years. Like Luther and other people had ideas along these lines. To all of these, the corrective is Jesus' words, be on your guard, see to it that no one misleads you. Verse 5 and verse 9. False teaching is something that flourishes during moments of disaster. Why is that? Well, when everything's going well, nobody wants to hear about prophecies and what's going to happen and all those sorts of things. But if, if it looks like things are going to fall apart, everybody gets suddenly interested. Is this the end of the world? What's going to happen? What comes next? And that's an opportunity for false teachers to stand up and say, hey, I have a message from God. Hey, here's what you're supposed to do. And I think we've seen at various moments, along with a resurgence of interest in figuring out what God's doing in the world, at things like when the World Trade Center event happened or when um, you know various world wars, all of those sorts of things, there's this resurgence in interest in religion. There's a corresponding spike in false teaching trying to answer those questions. Along with watching out for false teachers, though, Jesus warned about getting ready for persecution. In verses 9 through 13, be on your guard. They will deliver you to the courts. You'll be flogged. You'll stand before governors and kings for my sake. This would happen to the disciples. They would testify, but it would not be easy. The gospel would be preached to all the nations. The Spirit would guide their words. Jesus' teaching would bring a sword to families, lead to one betraying another. 
The followers of Jesus would be hated by all, but endurance would mean salvation. Like Peter, shortly after this moment, we think that we'd all be ready to die for Jesus. No questions asked. But then like Peter, we deny Jesus in smaller or greater ways on a regular basis. Here's the thing I would say. I think the first direction I started to go was, and what are all those ways? But here's what I think we need to remember. Peter was not ready, but God got him ready. He thought he was ready at the moment of Jesus' betrayal, and he wasn't. But you know when he was ready? When it came time for him to be martyred for his faith. Jesus told Paul via Ananias, you will suffer for my name's sake. And Paul was delivered to the court, flogged in the synagogues. He did stand before kings and governors. I'm not saying Jesus' words were exclusively about Paul, but Paul is a prime example of the sort of thing that Jesus is talking about here. And the gospel was preached throughout the known world by men who, it was said, turned the world upside down. How did these men like Paul and Peter and others help others prepare to follow their examples. Paul urged Timothy, suffer hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He reminded Titus that God's grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and to live sensibly and to look for the return of Jesus our Savior. He told the Ephesians to walk as children of light. Peter also said, I'm reminding you of the truth I already told you. The apostles had a clear sense that they needed to endure to the end. And they called the people around them to do that same thing. So how do we endure to the end as this passage admonishes? We put off the things that don't matter and replace them with things that do. This is going to sound like I'm saying things to you, but these are all things that I've done. How many hours a week are you watching TV or playing games on your phone or researching stuff you want to buy, or projects you want to do. On the other hand, how much time in a given week are you spending talking with family and friends and fellow church members about what God is teaching you from his word? Or as a step before that, how many hours a week are you meditating on God's word and praying to him in regular conversation? And as a step after that, how many hours are you telling people around you about Jesus? I realize we have to work, I realize we have to sleep, but as Americans, we have a ton of free time compared to generations before us, and a lot of it is wasted. And like I said a moment ago, all these things that I said, are you doing this? I have done that, and I struggle with doing that. We needed to get a scoop for the litter box because there wasn't enough litter in the box and it got stuck on the bottom and the plastic one snapped in half. So I get on Amazon and there's 50 options of what I can buy to scoop the litter box. And I could spend an hour researching it or say it does not matter. Buy the $10 one or the $15 one and if it doesn't work, send it back. Like That does, that does not need to be a major life decision. But we can get in this mindset that says, Oh, I got to save money or oh, I want to get the right thing like I'm afraid I'm going to miss out on the the ultra option or I'm afraid I'm going to waste two dollars or and and I'm not saying we should be careless with money. I'm not saying we should never think about anything before we do it, but maybe this is never a thing for you. 
But I can guarantee you, if it's not researching which product you should buy in a particular situation, there's something else that is a, is a distraction that's pulling you away from really important things we're supposed to be doing to things that really don't matter. Because you know what? I could buy the deluxe model and eventually it's going to break or the cat will not be here anymore and we're going to throw it away. Like one of those two things is going to happen. So if I spend all this energy about something that's really not an important decision, what, how am I not using my time to minister to other people? And there's stuff we've got to do, right? You have to do work in the yard. But I can say, hey, Braden, Maggie, come out to the yard with me. Let's go do this work together. I can be spending time with people and doing the work that I need to do. Whereas if I'm doing the researching the optimal product, that's usually something I'm off doing by myself. No conversations with people, trending toward greed, trending toward not trusting in God because I'm worried about whatever. How much of our time and money is devoted to the American dream? Uh, the men's group Wednesday night, I played an excerpt from a sermon that John Piper preached a long time ago. He basically said, do you want to spend your life, especially the last few years, collecting things that don't matter? Do you want to waste your life? Don't waste your life. He gave the example of people driving toward this dream of retirement and I live in Florida and I have a boat and I collect seashells and then the last 10 or 15 years of my life I've spent doing that and then I come before God I'm like, hey God, look at this collection that I left back there of all these things. Look at this amazing boat that I had. Look at these, all these sunsets that I got to watch. Enjoy sunsets, collect seashells, ride a boat if you can, but that's not the point of our lives, right? So if we say, well, I'm going to do, let's say we turn retirement into a Christian goal. I'll serve God when I retire. Or I'll serve God when I'm 18. Or I'll serve God when I'm a teenager. We've got to serve God right now. We've got to live life right now. We've got to follow God right now. I would argue, based on assessment of my own life, and to the degree that you're similar to me, I would argue you and I are not ready for the sort of persecution that Jesus is talking about in this passage. But by God's grace, we can get ready. If Peter wasn't ready, and Peter's the one who's talking to Mark as he's writing this gospel, if Peter wasn't ready, but God got him ready, God can help us get ready. We must follow faithfully now so that by God's grace, we will endure to the end and be saved. You're still wondering the when question. We'll get to it. But first, the other main point from this passage. Follow Jesus with watchful preparation because you don't know when he's coming back. In what circumstances? False teaching and persecution and the temptation to trust in our own works instead of what God wants. That's sort of the setting. But the reason is because you don't know when he's coming back. Jesus still doesn't say when everything's going to happen. In fact, in verse 32, he's going to say, Of that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father. But he does mention signs associated with the end times. You don't know when he's coming back, but he could return at any time with judgment and deliverance. So, verses 14 through 27. I'm going to have you write down a couple parallel passages because they're important. You should go read them later. I've read them a bunch of times and I still need to read them more. Matthew 24 and 25, Luke 21, 10 through 36, and then what we're looking at here, Mark 13. Matthew 24 and 25, Luke 21, especially verses 10 through 36, 
and then this section here in Mark 13. This phrase, abomination of desolation, is not just a random thing, even though it sounds very poetic and apocalyptic. It was a sign to flee immediate and overwhelming judgment. Uh, Luke, I think, makes it even a little bit more clear. In Luke 21, verse 20, he says, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. In those times of disaster, people would take the opportunity to say, Here is the Christ, verse 21, or He is there. And Jesus says, going back to the point about not being deceived, don't believe them. False Christ and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. John makes it clear that just as you have heard the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared, and this is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. After that time of great tribulation, verse 19, a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the creation until now and never will, unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. After that time, signs in heaven would take place. The sun would be darkened and the moon not give its light. The stars would fall from heaven and the power in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with glory. The Son of Man would return, verse 27, to gather his people. He will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. There's a bunch of passages that tie into this. I'm just going to read you a few of them. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14 says this, I kept looking in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And then uh, the interpretation of that, Daniel 7 Verse 27, Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. There's a parallel passage in Psalm 110, verse 1, where it says, uh, Sit at my feet until I make your enemies a a footstool beneath your feet. There's also the reality of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where it talks about the return of Jesus. And um, in that passage, it says that um, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. But then there's also Second Thessalonians 1 and 2, where it talks about you who are troubled, rest with us, for when the return of Jesus, when he's revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who don't know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And then it talks about signs similarly in 2 Thessalonians 2. 
Paul says, don't be quickly shaken or worry that the day of the Lord has come. It will not come until the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And what is true about that lawless one? Going back to Daniel chapter 9, it says there, that um, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to bring an to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree and restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations, one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. You don't know when he's coming back, but he's given you patterns to observe. Verses 28 through 32. Learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender, you know summer is near. If a tree puts forth leaves, you know that it's time for summer. Trees don't put forth leaves from the winter, with very rare exceptions, um, particularly fig trees. It's time for summer. When you see these things going on, you know that the coming is at hand. When the signs take place, it is the time at which the Messiah is at hand. Verse 29, right at the door. Here's the struggle. Verse 30, it says, This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What does this generation mean, and what do all these things mean? And how does that fit with, no one knows the day or the hour, verse 32, and that God's word is certain, verse 31. <clears throat> and the reality is, I'm not going to give you new information that is original, because there have been hundreds of scholars that have said, what does this passage mean? This is a, probably one of the more difficult passages in the Gospels. Here's my best attempt at an answer. How does Jesus use the phrase, this generation earlier in the Gospel of Mark. In Mark 8, he says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And then, chapter 9, verse 19, he says, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. My best attempt at an answer is this. This generation is an unbelieving generation. Generation is offspring, right? It is the offspring, the children, those who belong to Satan, demonstrated by their unbelief, demonstrated by their lack of faith, demonstrated by their sinfulness. What are the alternative op options? 
<coughs> the alternative options are that it's a generation of people. A generation was usually 30 or 40 years. Um, that it is a specific subset of people like ethnicity, that he's saying something like Jewish people, or some combination of those three things. Here's why this matters. If he is saying this generation will not pass away as in the generation that was alive at that time, he would be pointing to some sort of judgment that's going to happen in the very near future. If he is pointing to that, and it says in verse um, 30, 27, he's going to gather forth the elect, and he says all these things are going to happen in 30 or 40 years, we're well past that, which means you and I can't possibly be part of the elect, or God has forgotten us, or Jesus was wrong. Right? Some combination of all those ideas. If he's talking about a generation like the Jewish people, <coughs> that doesn't fit the scope of Jesus' words in conversations with both Jews and Gentiles alike that basically say, to the extent like this is in the Gospel of John, to the extent that you behave like Satan, you are as his children. And that's not a specifically Jewish problem. Paul makes that very clear in Romans 1 and 2. Why did Jesus say this in this way, in a way that raises all these questions and seems to be deliberately ambiguous? What was the point of the parables? Remember what we said about the point of the parables? To obscure the truth from the unbelieving, for him to explain it to those who were believing, but even when he explained it to the believing, did they always get it? No. So here's what I'm getting at. Just like the dead fig tree of previous chapters anticipated God's judgment on his rebellious people, Jesus is going to use the idea of a fig tree here to illustrate something being near. When you see leaves, it doesn't mean summer is tomorrow. It means summer is soon. It's at hand. And that's exactly what Jesus says. Jesus is at the door. Just as there is a wicked generation Jesus' day, so too it continues in our day. Why do I say that? Because John uses very similar language to describe what's going on, the things about the Antichrist, the things in the book of Revelation, both of those books being written later than the fall of Jerusalem. Now, there are people who say they were written before the fall of Jerusalem, and the reason that they say that is because they want to say all of these things have already happened. Their view is that Mark 13 is all in the past. But church history and a lot of witnesses attest to the fact that John lived to be very old and wrote his gospel near the end of his life during the reign of Emperor Domitian, which would have been around 80, 90 to 95. So if he's writing in 80, 90 to 95, that's some 20 years after the fall of Jerusalem. And if John is saying there's still something about this passage that is relevant for our day, then we should take a step back and say, can this all be in the past? Now, there is a reference both to a typical generation of 40 years like those in the wilderness and an ongoing generation of those who follow Satan as his offspring. God has thus given a pattern that would warn his people in the first century and his people even now. I'm not playing games with words. Let me illustrate this for you. Isaiah chapter 7. The prophecy as specifically written 
in the Hebrew says a young woman will be with child. The next chapter, it says Isaiah's wife has a son. And the two kings that were going to be a threat to Uzziah were destroyed. God gave Uzziah a sign that had two parts. The first part of the sign was a child born before he's two years old, the kings that immediately threaten you will be destroyed. God also gave an even greater sign, the one that Uzziah didn't ask for, higher than the heavens above or the earth below, that the Messiah would come and be born of a virgin. But we don't see the fulfillment of that until Matthew comes along and says, in the Greek, a virgin will be with child. Hebrew, young woman, never been married, never been with a man. Greek, virgin, very specifically, um, I'm sorry, let me clarify that. The Hebrew is a young woman. It can refer both to a young woman who is married or a young woman who is not. The Greek is a young woman who has not been married and is a virgin. Here's what I'm trying to say. God knew what Hebrew meant and God knew what Greek meant. And God said what he said in Hebrew so that it could serve as an immediate and a future sign. And God said what he said in Greek to make it very clear, here's what I intended and here's this is pointing to the Messiah. Daniel chapter 7 and Psalm 110 versus Daniel 9 compared to Revelation there is a sense in which the enemies are going to be judged. When Jesus uses, and we're going to see this in the next chapter, Jesus says in um, verse 62 of chapter 14, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He's announcing judgment on the religious leaders of his day. Judgment that was at hand. There are enemies that are judged in Jesus' day and shortly thereafter. There are enemies that are judged in the end times. And God knew that he could use the verse in, apply it, uh, in Isaiah to apply to both aspects of that judgment. Just like we've been talking about in the Minor Prophets. Here's a locust plague. The locust plague is anticipating widespread destruction at the end times. We see this. And, and what was the response supposed to be? Repent, be aware, get ready. And yet, there's also going to be a future time of great tribulation. What does this have to do with the people in Jesus' day? Why is Jesus saying this to the disciples? Why is he saying, watch out, get ready? If this is something that's going to happen 2,000 years later, what did it matter right then? Rome was going to come and sack the temple and kill a whole lot of people within 40 years. The early church took this passage as a warning to get out of Jerusalem when they saw the Roman armies surrounding it. But Revelation talks about a time when other armies are going to surround Jerusalem. So which one is it? The answer is God knows that both is going to happen, and so he words it in such a way that it can be a warning for the people in AD 33 and later for AD 70, and a warning for people in the end times, whatever date that ends up being. So here's the sum summary of it. You don't know when he's coming back, so be ready. Jesus urged them to be ready because they didn't know when everything would, would happen. He illustrates it like a master leaving his slaves, watching the house, didn't say when he would come back. He could come back at the evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows, or in the morning. 
The focus is not when does the master come back. The focus is on be ready when he comes back so you're not caught off guard. The disciples, to summarize this chapter, echoed the false hopes of the religious leaders. We have a temple. How great are our works. This same pride casts Satan from heaven, Nebuchadnezzar from his throne, and characterizes every person who trusts in his work, not in God's. Because of the Jews' trust in their temple and their religious system, instead of in their God, God was going to destroy their temple as a judgment that was a preview of the final judgment. Throughout history, men have made temples and God has knocked them down. Like the generation in the wilderness who expressed unbelief, the generation who rejected Jesus, and every generation since then who has shown unbelief has faced God's judgment and will experience God's final judgment. The complexities of what God has revealed here and the connections between the prophecies of Daniel and the rest of the prophets, the other gospels, the writings of the apostles, and the book of the Revelation are staggering. And yet Jesus and the rest of the apostles point to a very simple truth. Be ready for Jesus coming back. You don't know when he's coming back. Don't leave your preparation to the last minute. So follow Jesus with watchful preparation. God in his wisdom uses that message to warn the disciples in his day. God can use that same message centuries later, millennia later, to warn us today so that we are not waiting to the last minute to get ready. Because the reality is we're not so much different from the people in Jesus' day. The master leaves on the journey. The parent goes to run an errand. The boss is not at work. The teacher hasn't called the assignment to be due. What is our tendency? I'll get to that later. We, according to this passage and the similar passages that admonish us as the church throughout the rest of the New Testament, are always to be ready for the return of Jesus. Paul said to the Thessalonians, What, by definition, is a Christian? What happened to you? You turn from idols to God, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven. What did Paul say? These things are not going to catch you off guard, Thessalonians, because you know the truth and you're eagerly looking for his return. What did Peter say? You know all these truths, but I'm going to keep reminding you over and over and over again because I don't want you to forget because our tendency is to forget and to be lazy and to not be ready. So follow Jesus with watchful preparation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. There's a sense in which I could not do this passage justice if I spent half the year on it or longer. And there's a sense in which the sum total of it is just the thing that we ended with looking at this morning. You graciously reveal your truth, and yet in the revelation of that truth, often in our finite minds, it creates more questions that we don't have the capacity or the details to be able to answer all of those questions. And so if our response is to say, if I just try harder, I'll figure it all out, and then I can tie it up neatly in a bundle and set it on my shelf and move on with life, 
that's exactly the thing that you don't want us to do. Seek out what you are doing, yes. Try to understand what you are doing, yes. But far more importantly, be ready for you doing it among us at any moment. Like it says in Hebrews, there are the sins that drag us down and the distractions that pull us aside. Help us cast those things off and to run the race with endurance. Because as this passage says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's not about starting well and getting five minutes in and then sitting down and just waiting for the race to be over. It is about, as Paul said, pressing toward the mark, and it's not until he's about to be executed that he says, I've run my race. I'm ready. Now it's your turn. Father, help us to have that same attitude. Not that we have to all be exactly like Paul, because you used Paul, and you used Barnabas, and you used Peter, and you used John Mark, and you used a whole bunch of other people that weren't just one person that we see as an example in the New Testament. But help us, to the extent that all of them had this characteristic of striving to follow after you and living with the goal of being ready, help all of us to live so that we can receive your approval at the end of our race. Well done, good and faithful servant. There's lots of standards by which we can evaluate our lives. And a lot of around us and sometimes even us are living for really stupid things help us to live for what matters help us to live with expectation of your return help us to live soberly in a way that calls the pagans around us to want to follow after you like Peter says they look at you and they wonder why you're not partying and trying to forget the evils of the world and they wonder why you're not just doing whatever you feel like. And that's not the sum total of our witness. We have to speak your truth, not just live it out. But that's a big part of our witness. We go about our day and we do a lot of the same things. But there is a soberness and there is a devotion to you and there is a set of attitudes that come out in the way that we live. And those are the things that provoke questions for which we can give an answer for the hope that's in us. Help us to encourage one another. Because also in Hebrews it says, to encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Sometimes we feel like we have to say the day is tomorrow for us to be motivated to care about it. But the day is any day and every day. And only you know which day, but each day we need to be ready for you. Help us to live in that way, Lord, we pray. Amen.